Barb Lawler testified before Congress on privacy legislation. She now works at the Information Accountability Foundation. Barb's career so far is really something to admire, and she's got a lot left since she'll probably never retire. On today's podcast, I am happy to have Barb Lawler, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Senior Strategist at the Information Accountability Foundation. So welcome uh, to the podcast, Barb. Thank you very much, Noah. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. Excellent. So we'll start with growing up. You grew up uh, in San Jose, California. And if you could talk a little bit about growing up, did you ever envision yourself uh, becoming a privacy expert? Well, when I was in elementary school and uh, high school, we had a variety of you know career specialists who came in. And I re- remember someone coming in from NASA uh, and talking about what future careers in what was and is Santa Clara Valley, but really became Silicon Valley. And that many of the jobs that people would have as adults uh, didn't exist then. And it certainly was true when it comes to, to my uh, uh, becoming a privacy officer and, you know, a privacy expert. But, you know, I certainly didn't start there. You know, I started at a time when uh, growing up in the Valley here, and, and you'll hear people wax poetic about it, but it was still a significant portion of orchards and farms. Uh, and it was really an agricultural community that became uh, sort of a vast suburban spread and, and business community over many, many years. My parents actually moved here from Minnesota and my dad was an engineer and uh, my mother worked for the phone company before she had a family. And uh, the, the types of businesses that were here when I was growing up were what we think of now as sort of the foundation, foundational technology uh, companies that we don't talk as much about anymore, but uh, certainly uh, colored and informed the innovation that became, Silicon Valley became known for. So did being around Silicon Valley in its very early days, you know, did, do you think it had, a, had an effect on where you are uh, today? Well, it, it did because when I was in college, the aspirational company to work for was Hewlett Packard. And this was Hewlett Packard started by uh, Bill and Dave. And it was considered the aspirational company, not only for the products and technology and innovation, but also for the culture. And so when I speak of the culture, it's the HP way. The HP way is something we don't think about. And some people think it's kind of corny now in a way, but at, at the core, the HP way was about putting people, i.e. employees, everyone who worked together towards common goals uh, at the center and that people were the most important asset that a company had and that you should be respectful and also provide employment. And so HP was known, when I say employment, even in difficult times. So HP was known for things like the, what was called the nine day fortnight uh, when uh, there was economic pressure at periods uh, throughout its history, including in the 80s. And so what that meant is rather than laying off people, uh, the company would, uh, you would have every, every two weeks, you'd have one day off and it was unpaid off, but that was better than looking at laying people off. So it was as much about values and culture. You know, it was the foundation of uh, all of the technical infrastructure, the manufacturing of chips, the manufacturing of the machines that make the chips. Uh, companies like Fairchild and, and Intel, as well as Hewlett Packard. And of course, there was a very strong, actually, military contractor uh, organizations as well. Uh, FMC, the Food Machining Corporation, is across from San Jose Airport. It's gone now. It's been replaced by uh, a soccer stadium and uh, a number of other companies. I think uh, Roku is there as well. Uh, but back in the day, that was one of the big employers in San Jose specifically even when some of these other companies I mentioned were really just starting. So, you know, it was a period of amazing growth, uh, amazing innovation, but really a change in culture from this kind of almost bucolic spread out agricultural community to one really focused on on a whole range of technologies and businesses. And, you know, HP was the company to work for. 
That's great. So we'll get to the HP days soon. Um, so what about in high school, you wanted to be a journalist. So talk a little bit about, you know, why you wanted to be a journalist and then what uh, made you sway away from that choice? My interest in journalism was peaked from the, the pre, really the previous several years and, you know, without dating myself too much, you know, it's everything from all the president's men and, you know, investigative journalism and journalism that sold st stories. Uh, I was the editor of my high school newspaper, uh, probably not shocking uh, given the interest in journalism. Uh, but the reason that I shifted is that I also had this idea that what I wanted to do long-term was to be a lawyer. Uh, and there's a lot of irony that plays throughout my career as a result of that. But uh, so the, the advice that I got at the time, and I will say the advice was, again, of the era, a little bit misogynistic, which was there are certain jobs that women should pursue and certain jobs that they shouldn't. And so uh, while there were certainly strong women journalists, it was uh, in many ways considered um, a men's field. Uh, and... You know, the advice was you would do better if you took a business degree or maybe a marketing degree or liberal studies, blah, 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 blah. Um, and the thought was, well, if I wanted to be a lawyer, get an undergrad first in something that I could use elsewhere. And then, you know, in chapter one of the irony is uh, I took a couple of law courses as a part of my undergrad and I didn't like them. And so I decided that wasn't for me and I needed to go in a different direction. Fascinating. Um, okay, so now we'll move, I guess, into uh, that different direction. So in college, um, did you have any internships then or did you get a little bit of experience working uh, in the real world? I worked mostly in retail, as many people do. Uh, I did some, you would call it unpaid internships, more on the advertising and design side. So instead of uh, focusing on journalism and taking business courses and a few extra courses in law, I also took advertising and design courses and thinking, well, I could be more on the business side of media and newspaper, you know, always having had an interest there. Um, so I did some design work for uh, the retailer I worked for, which was uh, a regional family-owned uh, pool and patio furniture store. So I actually sold patio furniture while <laughs> I was in college and uh, uh, developed an appreciation for well-constructed furniture of all types, not just patio furniture. Very nice. Um, okay, so then you went to HP uh, right after college and you were a pricing data analyst. So curious, first of all, you know, just in those early days of HP, what did data and, and data analytics look like uh, in those days? It was pretty simple. And my time started HP. I was, again, I mentioned earlier you know, that this was the aspirational company. And so I was incredibly excited and frankly grateful that uh, I actually interviewed for three different roles and took the one in particular that is what you mentioned. And uh, in those days, we were working with databases that worked very much simple rows and columns like spreadsheets. And we had, HP had some of the very earliest touch screens uh, before they became really functional and operational because they weren't laptop based. They were, you know, sort of um, you know, monitor based. And, you know, I just remember working at this really tiny screen with green fonts. So the fonts and the screens, the letters were green and working with an early version of a spreadsheet that was the front end to the actual database. Uh, but when we had uh, data quality issues, so I had a data entry clerk that worked for me and uh, she went through a period where she was not doing a good job. There's no other way to put it. Uh, and so we had these massive amount uh, of errors that were repeated over and over again. And so part of my job was to fix those. And I wasn't going to go in and fix them one by one because it was in the thousands. Uh, what I did was actually created uh, database queries and went in and searched for certain data elements with certain codes and did you know, massive you know, copy and replace or delete and replace uh, to correct the data that was wrong because the pricing data was for uh, support contracts and those were global support contracts. So it wasn't just US, it was Canada and Europe and Asia Pacific. And we did special pricing uh, uplifts for uh, 
Hawaii and Alaska. And we actually created, again, this will date me, magnetic tapes of that data that then we would send to physically to uh, European headquarters in Switzerland, to specific offices in, in, in Canada and in Singapore and in Japan. Uh, so it was a very interesting time where we were using these databases, but actually transferring the data in a very physical kind of old school way. Fascinating. So do you think that your early experience there working, you know, kind of on the other side of privacy, working actually with the data, has that shaped uh, the way that you, you know, are looking at privacy today, kind of having that lens uh, on the other yeah. side? I think I see it as very foundational. And this is, of course, the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but given that even in the very earliest days of my career, I was working with a variety of data databases, numbers going in and making these massive changes that you know, probably would have made someone nervous. There weren't the same kind of controls. You know, it was all for good. Uh, but what it also gave me a sense of what data actually is, what it means to have systems and data schemas and what data elements look like and what a row and column setup looks like, what different types of data structures are. And that actually continued through some uh, the next several jobs that I had because there was always a component of, we need someone to define the business requirements for the systems and the data behind it. And so I was always a part of those efforts, whether it was that pricing database as we upgraded it, uh, whether it was later on when I worked on uh, a uh, call management system, a sales lead systems was contributed to a unified customer ID effort. I think having that foundation of just actually working directly with data uh, even if today we would consider it in a very sort of simple and straightforward way that that's really foundational to privacy, which is interesting what data is, where it comes from, and how it can be manipulated and used. Fascinating. So uh, before we start talking about privacy work, you're at HP for quite a while uh, in, in the interim. Any particular highlights uh, that you remember before you started your privacy work there? Sure. Uh, I like to tell people uh, because it surprises them, particularly when they know me in the privacy context. I say, you know, I worked in a call center for eight years and that in itself is a long time to be in one organization. Uh, but the, the highlights, if you take some of my earlier work that was around you know, data management and systems administration, what working in that call center was because we were focused on pre-sales, in other words, uh, HP had customers, potential customers, current customers looking for everything for uh, the replacement laser, cart laser cartridges for your laser jet printer or ink cartridges or, you know, in days of PCs, you know, I need a new keyboard. I need different monitors. I need these large systems to network my PCs or my business systems together. And the how that was important was one, you got exposure to all of the breadth of the products that HP built and created. And so you had this very company-wide view, the sort of end-to-end -end view. Uh, and, but what we also had is we were all trained, those of us who worked in this organization, because we were providing essentially technical guidance in a pre-sales. In other words, people were interested in buying or replacing or upgrading for the entire product line. So we were trained as HP sales reps. They flew us out to specific training locations at different HP sites. So we could learn how all of the products were made, how they were built, actually seeing it, but then also saw the, the marketing and the other content that was used to actually then sell and promote the products. You know, data sheets back when those were physical pieces of paper that customers would want and we would send them in the mail. Um, so that was really fundamental training because what you learned there was, again, not just the breadth of the technology and how it was built and then how it was sold, but actually uh, active listening skills and working with people skills and problem solving skills and analytical skills and total quality control training skills. I was actually a quality assessor for a while. And when I think back on that now, the, the skills, which are, we would call soft skills or business skills, 
are foundational, I think, for any career and certainly in leadership roles because you have to be able to listen well and work with people, help people solve problems or solve them yourself, uh, but then also set the strategies around that. So I consider that particular part of my career at HP really foundational and ultimately led me to what became uh, a little farther down the road, the, uh, jumping into privacy. Fascinating. So let's just uh, do just that and jump into privacy. So how did you end up uh, becoming the privacy manager at HP and talk a little bit about, you know, your, your years there as the, as the privacy manager? Definitely. I, uh, I took a job that no one understood and no one liked, and frankly, <laughs> that no one else wanted. And so a moment ago, I was talking about that time in the call center. And so in that call, in the call center, this is leading up to, to what you asked is, first I was on the phones with customers, then I managed a team that was on the phone with customers. And then I worked with internal business units who actually funded the organization, otherwise known as tin cupping, asking for money to support the organization. And that became the foundation to actually do some work in content management in a different organization. But it was the people that I worked with on those projects in those two areas that ultimately led to a corporate organization that in the early days, very shortly after uh, the EU data protection directive was created, and the, the executives in the central marketing organization of the company said, we need someone to help build and create a privacy program who understands data, who understands marketing, who can drive cross company, you know, understands the structure of the company, um, understand initiatives. And so people that I worked with this in those uh, two other prior roles reached out and said, we think you'd be great for this job. And I researched that job and I went in and interviewed for it. And if you're lucky in your life, you can take all of your experiences and come to something where you, you say, aha, I get it. I understand what the issues are. I understand what the opportunities are. I know how to do this. And that was how I felt when I got just in the interview process for the privacy job. I already knew what I wanted to do for the first six months of the job before they even gave it to me. Um, so I was really excited about that just because I kind of got it. And uh, you'll see throughout my privacy crews that what I like to do is I like to build things. I like to sort of build and design things and then push it out and then build up people and teams to help do that together as a team. And so certainly in the early days, uh, it was a lot of greenfield. There, there were very few of us doing the work and the people that I met at the time uh, were uh, there, there, there really was no such thing as a privacy lawyer. There were a few people doing legal work that involved privacy, but most of us came out of customer support or my kind of background or maybe an IT background. And so we were all learning and, and developing the basics of what privacy standards based on, you know, early thinking out of the European Union, uh, self-regulatory approaches that came out of the Better Business Bureau and you know, what was the Department of Commerce at the time. Uh, it was really fun. We created what we called the privacy rule book because we wanted people to know that there were specific things that they needed to do, not just guidelines, because guidelines meant you could kind of interpret it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we, uh, the movie certainly came out afterwards, but if you remember the first Pirates of the Caribbean movies and they talk about the code and they say, well, the code and towards the end they say, well, they're kind of more like guidelines. And what we wanted for privacy at HP was something stronger than guidelines. So we created this rule book that uh, aligned business standards with privacy standards. And ultimately that became automated uh, through work with uh, the HP Labs organization. But you know, certainly in those early days, it was, it was fun. It got more challenging as more rules and regulations came into place. And when HP merged with Compaq, because then we, there was a much larger organization. And there, there was the chance to actually create for the first time an actual chief privacy office. So I was the leader of the privacy function for HP. You didn't see a lot of CPOs in those early days, uh, but was actually able to define and design what that should look like coming out of the merger with Compaq. Okay, so let's move to those days then when you actually became the chief privacy officer at HP and uh, you had some really fascinating experience testifying before Congress and with the EU-US safe harbor. So 
you know, just talk a little bit more about sure. that experience there as the, as the CPO. One of the very early tasks that I had as, even as a privacy manager before CPO was reading and evaluating a proposed privacy legislation. And HP was one of the early companies that was advocating that there be baseline federal privacy legislation for the US. And not necessarily because we were looking for adequacy or equivalency with Europe, but just because we thought it was would be good for consumers and good for business to have that common understanding and level playing field. Uh, that was a very long time ago. Uh, we're still having those same discussions and debates today. Uh, but in testifying before Congress, you know, HP was very involved in the Washington DC public policy area. And we thought again, that a federal approach would be better for everyone. And so uh, the first time through was uh, there was a two gentlemen that, whose names we know well, uh, McCain, Carey, Bill. And uh, that, those were fascinating experiences because you know, if you haven't actually sat before uh, House or Senate uh, to provide testimony, there's a whole process around uh, defining, you know, what, what is your point of view? What is your role coming in to that testimony? Are you one of the good guys? You know, are you someone who's there to be kind of the designated punching bag? You know, are you there to provide sort of additional sort of being round, rounding out as um, additional content? So for HP, we were there uh, to represent sort of the responsible business good guy approach. And uh, a couple of memories from that is one, you know, just learning that you can submit written testimony as long as you want, but you have to keep your verbal to five minutes. So you've got to practice, which means you actually want a little less than five minutes worth of material because it never quite times the way you time it. That there's the little timer in front of you with the color codes that goes from green to yellow to red. And when it's red, even if you're mid-sentence, they will tell you to stop. Uh, what you learn is that uh, members often aren't in the room, it's their staff. And so, you know, what we think about in movies or TV or some, you know, very high profile hearings, most of the time it's staff and a few members or the members come in to put, get their comments on the record. They make their comments and then they leave. So they actually don't listen to what you're saying. And it's kind of disappointing when you think, oh, I'm going to have this audience and they're going to hear what, what I'm saying and they're going to care. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Um, on the house side, you know, my most vivid memory there is of a particular member who had during a break had ob very obviously because I could see it from a distance printed off the entire HP privacy policy and I could see yellow highlights on it, uh, even from across the room across the dais and he went through and started playing gotcha with me and started asking me questions about an issue we still talk about today, which is sharing data with third parties. And what's the difference between a vendor and a third party? And aren't you sharing it for marketing? And aren't you lying in your privacy statement? And uh, I could feel my public affairs person sitting right behind me, uh, actively fidgeting and being very uncomfortable. Uh, and you know, I honestly, I tried to answer this guy's questions two or three times and he just didn't understand or didn't want to understand the difference between a vendor versus just, you know, sort of selling and sharing data for marketing purposes. And it actually took another member uh, to explain, to interrupt and explain it to him and then ask me to confirm, which I did. And that member got so angry that he just, just left the room right after that. You know, he walked out of the whole thing. It was, um, it's quite an experience. Wow, sounds like it. <laughs> um, so staying in your HP days there, talk a little bit about, you know, you had a lot of international experience uh, talking on privacy panels in other countries. And you also talked with other companies about starting a privacy program. So, you know, uh, if you could just discuss a little bit more about that international experience and also the advising companies. The international experience came from a couple of different perspectives. One would be that uh, other countries and, and or other events that involved regulators and policymakers, they wanted to hear again that, that responsible HP approach to privacy and that it could be done. 
And so that meant everything from going to Japan and what was uh, uh, one of the leading J Japanese academics on the time uh, who was promoting uh, the development of a Japanese data protection law and sitting in this giant room where you, you had a translator, so you had to pause and so you had to parse your comments very slowly. Uh, they wanted to hear how we were achieving uh, safe harbor compliance and what our initial approach was and then how we built up uh, policies, procedures, assessments, training, uh, and uh, then reevaluated that. Uh, in Australia, I had the opportunity to talk about uh, some of the more strategic work we were doing actually around, uh, again, what today's kind of table stakes, but building out processing procedures uh, as it relates to, again, going back to that sort of vendor and third parties and being able to classify vendors and third parties in different categories so that you were managing them the right way and empowering uh, whether it was strategic alliances or more tactical procurement organizations. Uh, in Canada, we talked a lot about actually the employment relationship. And uh, we tend to focus on consumer issues when we talk about privacy, but they're equally important and substantive issues when we look at employees and contractors. Uh, in Ireland and UK, there was a lot of discussion around uh, spam. This was the area where era where spam and anti-spam efforts were, were kind of front and center. So really a range of topics, but you know, I learned a lot from others. Um, one of the events I spoke at was in uh, Cambridge, UK, uh, during what would be our Independence Day, 4th of July weekend. And it was probably 80 degrees there and about 80% humidity and speaking at lunchtime on the second floor of a building that was about 600 years old and stone with very little windows. And uh, talking about HP's approach to Safe Harbor, uh, following uh, a speaker from Philip Morris, who had just insulted the audience by saying that the Europeans and the British didn't know what they were doing with data protection and that American companies were gonna do whatever they damn well pleased. Um, so <laughs> it was easy to come after that and say, you know, actually companies are responsible and American companies can be responsible and, and here's how. That's great. Um, okay, so, so that was the, oh, you know what, and you, sorry, you asked about that was the international piece. Um, because privacy was still in early days, then, you know, as we were building out kind of our networks and people coming into the field, uh, I got a lot of requests to actually come in and talk to law firms and explain how privacy programs could be created. And also, you know, large companies, you know, everything from large grocery chains, drug change, uh, you know, other technology companies that, you know, most of the names you can think of, I spoke to a lot of them. I came into, sometimes it was a security person who needed to add privacy to, you know, his portfolio. Sometimes it was a CEO. I talked to a big pharma and, you know, talked to the entire board of directors at a pharma about here's how you build a privacy program. That's great. Um, so moving on from HP, then you moved to uh, Intuit and you became the first uh, chief privacy officer there. And uh, when you were there, you developed the data steward stewardship principles that were used by, you know, a lot of different people in the industry. So just talk about, you know, your transition to Intuit and then uh, some of the things that you were able to accomplish there. Mm -hmm. A uh, couple of differences between HP and Intuit, you know, Intuit, you know, relatively speaking, a newer company focused on software and financial services, different from, you know, uh, a more hardware product uh, focused company. Uh, Intuit was going through a major transformation, which was from the old days of uh, buying, you know, physical discs in boxes at, you know, your, your friendly neighborhood uh, Best Buy or Costco or um, uh, other retailer, uh, or at times physically downloading software onto your computer uh, to do your taxes or to run your business or to manage your finances. And so what Intuit wanted to do in that transformation was moving really away from physical media as a way to deliver software to online. Ultimately that became moving to the cloud uh, and uh, all the components that go along with that. So at Intuit, they had kind of a first wave of privacy, um, but they didn't actually have a chief privacy officer. They had a large staff that 
the organization had felt were actually inhibiting that transformation. And so what they wanted is someone to come in and rebuild the program, restaff, and support this transition to online. And you know, coming out of HP, that was actually natural because so much of what HP was doing was already online at the time. The goal for the data stewardship principles was, was very specific but broad, which was as we move to online and ultimately cloud and are delivering our software products and services through the cloud to our customers, which are small business owners, our accountants who are also small business owners, those accountants doing, in some cases, taxes for individuals, and of course, individuals using products like TurboTax, is how do we uh, build and expand trust and confidence, both in our customers as well as other stakeholders who uh, are very interested in what happens in this small business accountancy and tax preparation space. And it's the idea that uh, these products are data-driven and the more uh, that they are cloud-based, they're gonna be data-driven, but they're gonna be done in a way that is responsible and provable. And so that is the idea of data stewardship, that it's not just privacy compliance per se, but it's got a values and an ethics component to it that we are, going to use data, but for the direct benefit. And we actually had to prove that there was a direct benefit to consumers, not an indirect benefit. Uh, and those data stewardship principles were developed in, you know, it was a team effort. You know, this was not certainly not just me, uh, but, you know, in tandem with uh, my general counsel, with our chief technology officer, with our heads of business, with our chief marketing officer, uh, as well as, you know, uh, our various heads of product engineering and the company chief architect. And what we really want to do is articulate principles, something that was values that help people make decisions and make responsible decisions about data, but also make sure that they are building in the right protections and accountabilities. And so that meant also, again, alignment with uh, information security. Uh, we developed the principles and we actually developed a tool called the Data Use Guidance Tool or DUG for short. And what we did there is take those principles, take all the compliance requirements and then create essentially an interactive online uh, sort of Q&A process, an interactive tool, if you will, that again, allowed whether you were a marketer with a project or a data scientist working on a new analysis, uh, just as two examples where you could go through and identify what were you hoping to accomplish? What types of data were you going to be using or did you anticipate using? What controls did you have in place? What have you already done? What else might you need to do? And in the case of uh, certain you know, sensitive uses or, or basically new to the world kinds of ideas, then that would kick out to actually to myself or someone on the privacy team where that then we'd have more of a consultation. We'd sit down and kind of walk through uh, what should be in place. So they're really decision-making tools based on both values as well as compliance. And you know, we strongly believed, and, and the company still does today, you know, although I'm not obviously not there anymore, that guiding principles help smart people make good decisions and that you need a values-based approach uh, as a complement to and in tandem with also uh, uh, very structured compliance efforts. So you mentioned that uh, you had to prove that each one of these principles had a direct benefit to consumers. Curious if you have off the top of your head an example of one of those principles and then like how it actually led to a benefit. Mm -hmm. So we would say in the principles, for example, that um, uh, the data belongs to the customer, to the individual. Uh, we would say that uh, we would only, again, as I mentioned, uh, direct benefit for the customer. We at times had debate about was a customer a person or a group of people and kind of evolved some of our thinking around there. And we would say uh, also accounted for the right level of transparency, open and clear explanations, and uh, kind of depending upon the, the use case, I would say choice or consent. Choice to me is broader. Consent is a subset of choice because choice happens in a variety of different ways. Um, so an example is uh, we had a, a data set that was pretty exciting to hedge funds and the hedge funds wanted to either buy that database uh, or wanted to at least license it. 
And the process that we went through based on those principles actually served as decision criteria. So we would actually walk through the decision criteria and said, okay, does it meet this criteria? Does it meet this criteria? So we could say, well, maybe there's a direct benefit because if we license that data, then it helps subsidize the uh, delivery of the particular product group that that came from. And then we looked at, well, were we transparent? This is something that we might do. Uh, were customers given a choice about uh, whether this was something they wanted their data to be involved with? Uh, we actually had to articulate that in a series of presentations. We actually met with the entire CEO staff on this particular topic. And ultimately we decided not to do it. And part of the reason we decided not to do it is that while we, there, could be, there was an indirect benefit, you know, sort of financial underwriting uh, for a free online service, um, what we felt that we did not have in place was the right level of transparency and the right level of choice or consent uh, related to selling or licensing that data, uh, nor did we want to, from a trust and confidence perspective, go back and say, okay, now we've changed our minds essentially, and now we need your consent to do this. And we felt that that was not consistent with the company values or brand or our reputation with our customers. So uh, we were very serious about it. It's a great example. Um, so moving on from Intuit, then you went to uh, consulting and you talk about there that nobody was thinking correctly about uh, strategy. So, you know, just talk a little bit about, you know, that, uh, this, uh, yeah, consulting yeah. And, and what you worked, what types of, you know, projects you worked on there. Yeah. Um, I, and I make that comment coming up because it was a very particular time where, you know, the, the framework and the plans to roll out GDPR requirements for Intuit were done. And so that had been handed off to uh, the different functional and product groups implementing it. And you know, it was time for me to make a change. And you know, I was looking for you know, some new experience, some broader expertise. And what everyone wanted at that time was help with GDPR. And what they wanted to do is they wanted uh, either you know, tell me how to do data subject access and rights requests, uh, help me review my contracts and my data protection addendums to make sure they're aligned with GDPR. And it was very compliancy. It was very kind of check, not check the box uh, because people were in, in, I would say, sort of a controlled panic about GDPR and very concerned about the fines uh, and also very concerned about getting it right. And the GDPR is a very complex set of uh, rules in the regulation itself, but also supplemental documents that when you add all those up together were just as long as the regulation itself. Uh, and a lot of things undetermined, in fact, some things that are determined today, you know, for example, GDPR has this idea around codes of conduct and uh, as sort of safe harbors, if you will, lowercase safe harbors for, you know, certain kinds of activities and, and, you know, the EU regulators are just now working on that and it's been in effect for over three years at this point. So, you know, my experience with consulting was at the time, it was, it was a window of time where people's focus was very narrow and internal and specific and very kind of compliance. And I think people weren't thinking about strategy around privacy and looking ahead on, I would say how they wanted the GDPR to work for them to work through the GDPR, but also continue to do what they were doing. And I think there was a lot of tension between a variety of compliance folks, whether it was privacy and security with the business or otherwise. So it was kind of a strange time. And you know, ultimately what that led me to, one of the more forward-looking organizations that I did consulting work for was a company called Looker, uh, Looker Data Sciences. Interesting. So uh, that's a great transition. So moving to Looker, and they eventually were acquired by Google. Uh, so just talk about, you know, what, um, first of all, maybe a little bit of their business model, and then how mm -hmm. you are involved as far as the uh, privacy side of things, and also how you prepared uh, for the Google uh, acquisition. Sure, sure. Uh, a couple of highlights there. So when I started consulting for Looker and ultimately joined was uh, the company. Uh, so the company is a, is a data platform and it's uh, different because it is cloud native and cloud first, uh, which means that 
uh, you're not dealing with some of the legacy technology issues. As a data company, you don't have to, I found going back to what we talked about earlier, just my earliest uh, experiences with data is that it's much easier to actually talk about privacy and security uh, and data governance and information policy with a data company because they already understand the language of data. So you can, not that you can skip that part, but you can connect it directly to that. Um, our CEO, Frank, at the time, when I was, uh, before I decided to join, said uh, it was about the time that the Cambridge Analytical scandal, scandal was up front. And he basically said to me, how do we make sure that that doesn't happen to us? Uh, we want to make sure that we're uh, supporting our customers who use our products to basically analyze their own data to run their businesses. You know, they're looking for improvements in in operational infrastructure, improvements in their marketing efforts, improvement in their inventory efforts. Um, you know, Looker has a huge uh, base of customers in a variety of industries, but you know, very sensitive to that Cambridge Analytica scandal, which is why ultimately we said my role would be as chief privacy and data ethics officer. So it was the idea that you need to do more than just privacy compliance. You need to have a strategy and it needs to have a values or ethics-based component and that those questions are really around what are the right things to do with data and what are the organizations that we're working with and do we have, are we thinking about and have uh, let's say the right questions and or controls in place that uh, we wanna make sure that, that essentially our, our data is used for good. Uh, I actually worked with, uh, we had a data evangelist and um, you know, he was very much focused on data for good. Uh, the Google Cloud acquisition was uh, both interesting and a surprise. And so when you build out a privacy program to hit the core of GDPR, which is kind of where I started with Looker, and then expand that into a full privacy program that has a data ethics component, what that means from a due diligence perspective when you're being acquired is uh, we had a tremendous amount of the essential documentation, whether it's policies, records of processing, data inventories, data maps, uh, the, the right standard contractual clauses, the right data protection addendums, all of the elements and policies that a large acquiring company that is also subject to consent orders and other regulatory agreements uh, with agents uh, outside the US, um, we already had a lot of what they were looking for. So it actually made that part of the acquisition easy. Uh, the, in, the interesting and challenging part with Google Cloud is that Google Cloud, in, in the same way that AWS is a very distinct and separate part of Amazon, Google Cloud is a very distinct and separate part of the rest of Google. So business to business structure rather than business to consumer. Right, interesting. Um, so then you moved to uh, the Information Accountability Foundation, which is where you're at now, and um, talk a little bit about you know that what you're doing there. And it seems like maybe you're using some of your days uh, presenting in front of Congress um, with similar types of policy discussions. So uh, yeah. talk about your your current role at uh, um, at IAF. Well, and let me talk a little bit about why, which is uh, the IAF, the Information Accountability Foundation, is, is a think tank and uh, focused on you know, re really what are the forward-looking information governance and accountability policies that enable companies not just to be uh, compliant, but actually, in other words, to prove it's the idea to be responsible and answerable that you can prove that you're doing what you say that you're doing in a way that is responsible, that's that meets the compliance requirements, but also is forward looking. And that actually enables data use, kind of going back to think about my Intuit days. So um, I was involved as a member of the IAF uh, going back to my Intuit days. And actually the executive director of the IAF worked at a previous think tank organization that I was also involved with going back to my HP days. So there's kind of a long history there. Uh, the reason that I left uh, Look at Google Cloud is that the, uh, as a part of the acquisition, and, and this isn't always known, is that a lot of central functional groups like finance and, and human resources and, and legal, and although I'm not an attorney, I reported to our general counsel, uh, typically they don't hire in those roles. Uh, you get you know, a, a nice sort of uh, long-term 
contract to manage the, the transition and then you're done. And so that was kind of my position. My role was uh, for the year with Google Cloud was to take everything that Looker did and transition that and add you know, some structure and constructs so that people could essentially take over for me and for my team. And so then it became, well, what do I do next? And the IAF, um, I've always been very interested in the external policy side, as you mentioned, not just with testimony, but you know, what are all the big questions around that? And I think this is a particularly interesting and challenging time from a policy perspective is uh, not only do we have, of course, the GDPR that's in place today, uh, we have an increased interest and efforts in the US to uh, going back to what we talked about in my early HP days, which is to have uh, a federal level uh, privacy standard uh, for the US. Uh, that's something the IAF is working on. So I've always been interested in those issues as a chance to work in that area. It's a chance to stay connected with the leading thinkers in the US and abroad in a way that that's, uh, continues to be challenging and interesting. And, and my hope with the work that we're doing with the IAF and putting some structure and some additional you know, sort of communication savvy around what we're doing is that, for example, we've developed what we call a model legislation called the Fair and Open Use Act. And there what we're saying is that accountability approach, not just kind of the old sort of backward looking notice and consent structures that those aren't very helpful for consumers because it places such a burden on consumers. And so what we're saying is take the big chunks of these ideas that we've created in this model legislation, put that in existing uh, uh, legislative proposals uh, that emphasizes the accountability component is that we're in an observational world and it's a global digital economy and digital ecosystem and uh, expecting consumers essentially to be the data governance managers for that ecosystem which is really not just their data, but everyone's data um, is not just a lot to ask, it's too much to ask. So we need to ask companies to be accountable and responsible and answerable. And so that's part of our work and I'm excited about that. Sounds great. So just a couple uh, general questions to close out the podcast. Um, I'm curious, you know, every place you've been, it seems like you've started really from the, the bottom up um, and talk about, you know, just how you sort of, first of all, how you find yourself in those roles, and second of all, how you go about maybe approaching it. I think I've always been attracted to this idea of designing and building things, and sometimes it takes a while to figure that out. You know, the, the advantage of having different roles in HP and different roles in different companies, as you see how different companies work, but you know, what it takes to build and create something. And I think that's, you know, innate to, to who I am. And I had said way back in my HP days is that when privacy moves to kind of a more of a structured, very compliance, not check the box, but very kind of methodical and procedural, uh, that tends to leave a lot of the strategy and, and creativity behind. And I'm just not as effective. And it's learning what you do well and what you don't do well. And so if you want a leader, for example, to, to grow and maintain and kind of build out the, the very methodical and structured compliance pieces, I could do that, but it's not my favorite thing to do. It's not my strength. I'd rather build and create. And I think that's just, again, that, that's part of who I am. And part of, you know, as you, whether it's a privacy career and anything else is learning what there's what you do well and there's what you like to do. And if you're lucky, you can do both at the same time. And sometimes what you do well, you don't always like. And so the, 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 the building and the creating is definitely a part of that and being able to put frameworks around things. You know, I taking that a little bit to you know, advising uh, some startups here and there, both in the privacy technology space and otherwise, uh, because I think that's you know, where I can be the most helpful and, and bring my experience to bear. Great, so moving to the last question, uh, this might be a little bit, uh, you know, nearly impossible, but uh, for those listeners thinking about how they can become the next uh, Bob Lawler, Barbara Lawler, what uh, types of, you know, advice do you have for them or steps that you've taken or connections you've made um, that, uh, would you, that you'd give to, you know, aspiring, uh, Bar, 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 bar Wallers. 
So a couple of thoughts there. I, I think the first one would be, goes a little bit with what I was saying is, one of the hardest things to do is actually to step back and think about what do you really like about the work that you're doing, whatever that is. And I would say the work and the things that you do when you're not at work. Uh, and then what I would say is, you know, certainly particularly if you're interested in privacy and data protection, I think one of the most important things is it's impossible in my mind to separate what's happening externally from what you need to do uh, internally. And that means spending time sort of tracking, reading what's going on externally. And that means, uh, you know, uh, IEPP activities, uh, but also uh, you got to subscribe to a lot of different, uh, I would say, organizational uh, points of view. So that could be Center for Democracy and Technology, that could be EPIC, that could be uh, uh, future privacy forums. Certainly the IAF work is important. But I think understanding the principles and the foundation and the, of the policies that ultimately drive then compliance requirements, that that's fundamental. Uh, but I also think it goes back to looking at what do you know, individuals care about? What do consumers care about? Um, the last thing I would say, which is not specific to privacy is one of the reasons I found it, and uh, to your point uh, a little bit ago, you know, how did, how did I get there? And I seemed like building things is there was an exercise, a boss that I had at the, at the time when I was looking for something else and found that privacy job. And his advice was, there's no such thing as a career path. It's a career maze. And so your opportunity and your challenge is to think about, you know, what's working for you at each step and to look at your whole life end to end and not just this particular job in this particular moment. And that can be as simple as uh, reading articles about let's say a subject you're interested in or jobs that you're interested in and you know, taking that digital or physical highlighter pen and highlighting the words that uh, attract you to those. Uh, have people actually interview you, not for jobs, but ask you, what do you like to do? It's a little bit of the outline that you and I talked about, which is, you know, where did you start? What did you want to do? Why? But what's interesting now? And what you build is what's called um, a personal or a power profile is what he called it. And what you start to see are common themes and trends of what you like and what you do well. And what you ultimately want is that intersection of both is doing stuff you like and doing something well. And then it's not so much work. Then it's, it's, it's work, but it's also fun and for a purpose that works for you. That is excellent advice. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the, pod, on the uh, podcast, Barb. Thank you. Really enjoyed it.